Welcome back to another episode of a lawyer and a policy analyst walk into a bar. This is episode seven of season five. And today we're focusing on the CARICOM Commission on the Economy 2020. And uh, to help us do that, we have another great guest. I know we always say we have great guests, but every week, but we really do. And today we have none other than Professor Avinash Prasad, the chairman of the CARICOM Commission on the Economy. And he's going to give us his insight and we're going to pick his brain about this topic a little bit. But as always, I'm the lawyer, Jadrick Cummings. And I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And like Jadrick said, uh, another great episode, uh, uh, a very interesting and and, uh, guest here with us, Professor Avinash Prasad. Uh, We're going to give him a second to introduce himself in a bit. Uh, But of course, like Jadrick said, we're talking the CARICOM Commission on the Economy. And we started asking the question, can we move beyond some of the old thought that we have in in, in the region in terms of CARICOM and in particular the CARICOM single market and economy? And, you know, can we start to get beyond what a lot of persons in the region are referred to as the sort of implementation deficit? Uh, So, Professor Prasad, thanks for being here with us today. And you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and then we'll go right into the pod. Hi, well, hello. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And I love the concept of a lawyer and a policy analyst <laughs> meeting in a bar. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, cheers to you. Um, so my name is Avinash Prasad. I was born in Barbados. I grew up in the UK. Um, my background is uh, as an economist. Um, initially, um, my career was investment banking, so I became a sort of financial economist. Um, and then in the global financial crisis, I sort of transitioned, you might say, from uh, poacher to gamekeeper uh, and, and began getting involved in policy and financial regulation. Uh, my love is the Caribbean. I always consider myself a Caribbean man. My father uh, uh, was Guyanese, my mother Trinidadian. They spent much time in Jamaica and I was born in Barbados. Um, so I was easily persuaded uh, to chair the CARICOM Commission on the Economy, an exciting um, and challenging uh, task. We had a great set of commissioners, 10 in all, uh, from all walks of life that wasn't, weren't just uh, economists. Um, two international people, Ngozi uh, Ekonjo Iwelia, who's now Director General of the World Trade Organization, Pascal Lamy, uh, who was the former Director General of the World Trade Organization, trade being a, a key issue, we thought, or the, or the government's thought for the commission. Um, we had trade unionists, uh, Senator Chester Humphrey. We had uh, energy experts, um, uh, Gregory Maguire, health experts, um, Roger McLean, um, other economists like Damon King uh, and Therese Turner-Jones um, and uh, a couple others. I mean, it was interesting to me, Professor, and this is a very laid back podcast, as you would imagine. So I, I hope that's OK uh, with you. We, we're in a bar <laughs> virtually right now. Um, but it was interesting to me when you said you moved from sort of a portrait uh, to, to a gatekeeper. Uh, that was an interesting way to, to describe your transition. Um, but by way of a bit, a bit of a background for our listeners, because as you know, uh, Professor, um, this podcast is really more public information for those persons who may, like, who may not engage with these topics on the regular. So we try to break it down as, as simplistic as possible. So the CARICOM single market and economy, which is, of course, a big part of what we're going to focus on, the CSME, uh, as we know, is essentially an arrangement among the CARICOM member states for the creation of a single and large economic space to the removal of restrictions resulting in the freer movement of goods, services, persons, skills, capital, technology. Unfortunately, 
it has had sort of a checkered track record so far since it was officially established in, I think it was January 20, uh, 2006. And I think it's fair to say, and maybe you guys may disagree, that things have not always gone to plan. Uh, I, I Just a couple of thoughts from uh, former uh, General, uh, Secretary General uh, Ambassador Aaron Iraqi in 2013, he spoke about um, since its conceptualization uh, that apart from customary political platitudes among the heads of government uh, about the value of CARICOM in many uh, in a rapidly changing globalized political um, economic environment, there had been pitiful absence of meaningful assurances to stem the tide rolling of rolling cynicism uh, about the whole project and in 2018 he again um, sort of highlighted the slow pace of implementation of several decisions and he warned that the slothful pace uh having it was having an impact on the private sector and the credibility of caricom as a whole um so obviously since that time we know that uh, ambassador Iraq has recently left his role and however many of the challenges still remain that he would have lamented and others would have lamented over the years and so caricom would have appointed like you said professor uh, a commissioner on the economy and i think your your, your report was produced in uh, october 2020 um uh, co-name caribbean 9.58 and obviously that's a reference to you seeing both world record time uh and so that is what we're going to discuss today essentially um and you would have mentioned before um some of the persons some of the commissioners and the commission so can you tell us a bit about the caricom commission and the economy itself including what was its remit and whether uh, this is the first time that such a commission has had been established it's not the first time um it's probably at least the second time we had a famous west india West Indian report um, on the Caribbean um, just about 20 years ago. Um, my father was involved in that report. And so it, it meant that um, uh, I think I think that added some poignancy to all of the commissioners who were conscious that we in the Caribbean are probably the most overly consulted region in the world. We have no shortage of, of great reports uh, using fine language uh, where there are good applauds afterwards and nothing happens. Uh, they collect dust on shelves. And so the commissioners were very concerned that this would not just be added to that. There are busy people, uh, accomplished and busy people. Um, it's CARICOM, so we didn't get paid anything. Uh, so they want to make sure their time was being, <laughs> uh, uh, was being, was being useful. Um, and, uh, and so we began with, with asking why uh, was CARICOM, uh, what, why did previous reports, why, why was the CARICOM uh, itself not moving ahead? What was the problem we were trying to solve? The, the heads of state who appointed us um, wanted us to solve the problem of economic growth. Um, in the 1960s, 1970s and 1980s, the Caribbean was um, one of the fastest growing regions in the world. Um, and then around the late 1980s, early 1990s, we began to slip back, partly because the rest of the world began accelerating. Um, China began its long march of near 10% growth every year, uh, and it pulled up a number of other countries in Asia with that. Um, uh, the membership of the World Trade Organization also helped to grow, to grow uh, the world, uh, world economy. And then we also began to befall a number of uh, major natural disasters. Um, 
this year has been pretty bad, last 12 months with the volcano in, in uh, St. Vincent, um, but also um, the pandemic, of, of course, and, and recently um, hurricanes, hurricane season. And this, um, these natural disasters cost a lot of money. So the combination of slowing growth, uh, rising natural disasters, um, perhaps an unchanged economic model. You know, we, we, we were all brought up with uh, Sir Arthur Lewis's words ringing in our ears um, that the solution to poverty is not money, it is knowledge. Uh, so we as a region invest a lot in public education, mm -hmm. but we kind of didn't update that model. Um, and so, you know, more the same was not really pushing us beyond um, where we had got. So these were all reasons why they wanted to have a second CARICOM commission. Um, and the failure of previous commissions um, was the reason why our commissioners wanted to begin with, with trying to understand um, what were the main obstacles. And we identified three obstacles. The first um, was that in the region, we have people who either believe that everything should be done by CARICOM uh, or nothing should be done by CARICOM. Uh, and uh, we felt there was a, a happy medium in between the two. I wanted to set out a framework. Um, and the framework uh, we use is, is, is a phrase that was used previously in, in Europe called subsidiarity, which is that decisions should be made at the lowest level, lowest being the closest to the people level, um, uh, that is most uh, appropriate for that decision. So you don't want... Uh, 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 CARICOM in Georgetown deciding when your weekly garbage collection will be done. Um, but you may want the uh, CARICOM to be deciding whether we have a single airspace across our region and we charge um, ships and planes using the region a single fee so they don't get round different states. Um, so subsidiarity was the first thing. Um, we felt the CARICOM had been too ambitious, uh, so count, sort of juxtaposed with a lack of success was also high ambition. So we felt that we would be more successful if we had a more effective and modest ambition. So, so essentially, Prof, um, the subsidiarity was meant to sort of uh, get CARICOM to maybe focus on a smaller number of issues uh, as opposed to the, the sort of large um, remit that they have now uh, trying to do a little bit too much. That was the, the whole, um, you know, thinking behind it. A little bit more than that, though, not just the focus and, and less, but also appropriate. Um, so, for example, let's say an investor wants to come to our region. Um, let's say a bank wants to start doing low-cost banking services for the unbanked people in our region. They have to go through you know, a regulatory approval system, which is effectively the same system in every single country. They have to go through AML rules in every single country. Um, what about if we have one of the recommendations or the five recommendations of the commission, a central place where we uh, approve um, whether someone is uh, 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 an entity that could operate in our region, 
um, because they had good rules of financial conduct. And we give them a, a license that is appropriate for uh, every country in our in CARICOM. Uh, within each individual country, they, will, they may have additional rules um, to make sure they've got sufficient capital in those countries to, to, to meet the demands uh, of the services they're offering, but that they would be approved to operate. So that's an example. So it's not just focus. Um, it's not just limiting the number. It's also focusing on what's most appropriate. So subsidiarity was one of our three uh, key considerations for why uh, CARICOM had failed and what the problem was we were trying to solve. There was a lack of subsidiarity. There was an attempt to do too many things. The second um, thing we focused on was the fact that people think of CARICOM as a, as a set of bickering 15 countries who can't agree on anything. And the reality... Well, that's the perception, oh, dear, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is the perception. And it's not true. So the reality is that um, invariably, the reason why we don't agree to something is not that, that there was a big split between 15 countries, but it would be like 13 countries agree, but two don't. Or 14 countries are doing, one doesn't. Uh, or 12 uh, agree and three don't. And although the uh, treaty that governs CARICOM does not require unanimity on things like finance and the single market, uh, the precedent has been that they will wait for unity. And so our second uh, recommendation, so our first was subsidiarity. Our second uh, was what we call enhanced cooperation. And so what we say there is as long as five of the 15 countries agree to move ahead to something and the other 10 are not disadvantaged by their moving ahead, then they can move ahead. Now, skeptics consider that is at a fragmentation of CARICOM. And I think it's the exact opposite. The reason why 12 want to do something and three don't or or, or similar is often because the three are afraid of the unknown thing and so if five move ahead and everyone else the other 10 can observe that oh this has not led to a nuclear winter in the region um and things are actually okay and, and they, the five seem to be doing better then they're more likely to join so we're more likely to end up with 15 states doing stuff if we allow five at least to start so enhanced cooperation was our second uh, main recommendation the other thing we observed is that the center for most disagreements sent, uh, the, the, the source of most disagreements like in every family all over the world was money uh, and so what we did in our report was focus on which is a little bit of a um, a good discipline we focus on all those things we can do that would change um, CARICOM that didn't um, didn't require anyone to put up any money, not any significant money. So we were trying to make the point that the, the what's holding the region back is not actually money. Uh, it is really political will. It's not a, a lack of money because, you know, we can always bicker about money and some people would say, well, I'm contributing more than you're contributing and that would be the source of, of major problems. So we felt that the three things we had to deal with was um, subsidiarity, greater focus on what's appropriate, enhanced cooperation, allowing a group of countries to move ahead, and also 
focusing on a number of things um, that don't require money. And, and an example of those things are, like I talked before, a single place that will regulate conduct, standards of conduct um, uh, for, say, financial companies or investors or anyone coming into the region. Similarly, we wanted a greater mutual recognition uh, of standards so that if you are approved in one country, you are effectively approved in the others. So mutual recognition of standards, that mutual recognition would start off not with 15, because it's hard to get 15 degree to one set of standards, but with five, and then others may join. Um, okay. We also talked about um, the, the return of a, of a fast ferry. A fast ferry has been mooted for many, many years. Yes. Before you go there, um, I just wanted to kind of swing back a little bit. You spoke about, uh, in terms of enhanced cooperation, you said that the, the treaty, the revised treaty of Chagaramas does not require um, unanimity when it comes to decision making. You said it's more so being a, a practice. Yeah. Uh, so can I then infer from that then, in order, if we are to implement enhanced cooperation, that we don't need to revise the treaty? That's right. The, our, the commissioners were a set of very practical people, uh, and we thought that revising the treaty would not be something that would be easy to do, um, because whenever it comes to revising treaties, uh, people start to, to say, oh, well, if you're going to revise a treaty, you might as well do this as well. Mm. And then you get you get no short, you, it's very hard to get agreement. So um, moving to, um, so the commission have um, consulted with some experts and the report is going to be um, presented at um, a forthcoming CARICOM heads of government meeting on how they would actually implement enhanced cooperation. Um, and I don't believe anyone at the moment believes that uh, that requires any treaty change. Okay, uh, that's that's interesting because I, I mean, like I guess that was a fair. Some people, pe persons were saying, okay, with this enhanced cooperation, then perhaps if we need to go back to revise the treaty, that's going to prolong it, and then of course that whole that feeds into the whole implementation deficit narrative. Uh, but I have a question though, with respect to some of the, the sort of the three main points that you've put forward. Now, um, former Jamaican Prime Minister Bruce Golden, uh, he famously said that you know we must start to accept that the CSME is, is, is stuck in a hill. And it can't be allowed to remain there. And, and he said specifically, and this is the point I want to zone, on, zone in on, sorry, that tinkering will not serve that problem. Um, and we must take, make up our minds as to whether or not we want to roll it back or, or move forward with it. And essentially, a decision had to be made. So do you believe that some of these, uh, in terms of those large or those overarching three points that you've mentioned, do you believe that these recommendations of this CARICOM report on the economy um, simply represent more tinkering? Or can they be meaningful in terms of addressing what a lot of persons consider the implementation deficit? And some people are skeptical. Well, I think his analogy is a good one. We're stuck on a hill. So we were focused on how do we get unstuck? And so to get unstuck, you've got to start looking at why you're stuck. And we, we so that was precisely the way we began. Uh, these were not commissioners with their heads you know, stuck in, in the stars. Uh, they were very focused on all of those issues that you talked about, the cynicism, the implementation deficit, uh, the, the perception of squabbling. And as we examined on why we were stuck in this mud, what was the nature of this mud? We found it was those things that CARICOM was trying to be too ambitious. I mean, there's a set of people who, who believe we should have a single drinking age across the entire CARICOM. Well, um, 
to what benefit does that have? Um, in, you know, if if Antigua has a a higher drinking age than Barbados, how does that impact Barbados? Um, and so the effort required to have a single age which drinking is permitted across the region and all the health ministries involved and uh, others for for something that will bring very little benefit at the regional level. Um, and so we found subsidiarity an important thing. Uh, less ambition, more focus on what's appropriate. And secondly, it was a fact that many countries wanted to move in certain directions, but not unanimity. So we think enhanced cooperation, subsidiarity, and a list of all those things you can do without any money is the best way, the easiest way, the simplest way, the most effective way of getting unstuck. I can agree with that, um, Professor. Um, I, I think you were going to move on to it, but I'll probably still ask the question. Um, uh, in the report, of course, you spoke to the delivery of freer movement of people and goods uh, through primarily uh, a, a privately funded fast ferry network. Uh, and of course, this is not a new idea. Um, of course, the report noted that there had been uh, previous exploratory studies and so on done on this whole idea. Uh, what was interesting, though, uh, in terms of, of what this report put forward is, uh, is the acknowledgement uh, that it was likely not to be commercially viable unless we allow for reg for a regulatory environment that allows, for example, persons to travel with their vehicles uh, across borders and so on. Uh, and so my question then is, I mean, and you could perhaps expound on, on that because I know I haven't fully covered everything that you uh, incorporated in, in the report, but is this attainable given the need to amend the customs regulation across uh, the countries, or at least those, at least five who are willing to move forward? And, and then also when you start to uh, uh, kind of and a look into the fact that uh, our countries have a high dependence on customs duty uh, for our public revenue. And, and so that might cause some consternation there as well. Well, of course, within the single market, we don't have high customs duties between goods um, that we are. Well, I was I was referring specifically, Professor, to um, uh, if, if we're moving in the direction, and, and I guess the report did say that you would only be allowed to move with your vehicle for a short period of time. Um, but I was I was speaking in terms of the, the context of if that weren't the case, because there are other um, persons who are saying, you know, maybe you should be able to, to move. Uh, but in, the, in, in an area where you are allowed to move with the vehicle for a longer period of time, then that, that would create concerns in, in terms of where you land your vehicle. Because, of course, you know, uh, depending on where you land in St. Vincent, we have over 100 percent in terms of custom duties in right. Antigua. Well, it's, it's comparatively but, okay. cheaper and so on. OK, but, but let's not uh, conflagrate issues. So, you know, we're not importing a car. And so we just need to make sure that um, it, it, with, a, with the point about moving with your vehicle is that you want to hop across, you're, you're in Grenada, you want to go across to Trinidad for two weeks, maybe a month, uh, and you want to take your car with you. Um, we know that uh, uh, across Europe, that actually supports a lot of, uh, of, of movement. And, and small business people will also be attracted to that. Um, and so you're bringing your car over for a couple of weeks. You're not bringing your car. You're not. You're not going. Trying. You're not importing a car, uh, and that doesn't require um, a lot of technical changes to be able to ensure that. Whether it's just through your uh, tracker devices that are put on cars routinely now uh, in Europe to deal with uh, insurance for under for uh, young drivers. Um, I have 21-year-old twin boys, and for them to get insurance in the UK, they have a small black box that's attached to their car. 
Uh, I'm in quarantine in, in London uh, because of COVID. And if I move very far with my mobile phone, they know I'm... <laughs> it's going to go off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, there, there are many simple ways for us to make sure that, that people are doing what they say they're doing rather than actually trying to get around it. So I, I, I don't think that's the issue. So that's not mm -hmm. a problem. Um, uh, it, uh, okay, it's a political win again then. Well, I think there are some technical issues uh, and you need five countries who are prepared to devote the time and energy and are seeking a solution. And we believe, for example, in the Southern Caribbean, uh, that Trinidad, Grenada, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Barbados, um, and that's five, would be interested in reaching some kind of agreement that would facilitate a fast ferry because that will dramatically, if you add Dominica, if you think of Dominica and St. Vincent and Trinidad, these are exporters of goods um, and they can export so many more goods if they could have a guarantee in next day delivery. Mm -hmm. um, imagine that we could call up a Trinidadian furniture company and get furniture delivered the following day or call up a Dominican fruit Uh, company and get fresh um, Dominican mangoes delivered the next day. That would change dramatically the economy. I actually think movement, I think cheaper, easier, quicker, faster, more reliable movement of goods will actually make um, the region economically more important mm. than the movement of labor. Movement of labor is considered one of these uh, sort of symbols of, you know, how can you be a region if mm -hmm. you can't move labor? Um, and it's one of those ideas that in economics we find very hard to explain uh, to people because it seems a bit counterintuitive. But in economics, we argue um, uh, with, with evidence that actually you don't need a region to have, they're basically uh, three essential movements. So there's movement of, of people, there's movement of goods, and there's movement of capital, money. And actually, if you had one of those three completely free, it will actually, in, a, in, in, in over some period of time, uh, produce the effect as if you had movement in all of them. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, you had a free movement of goods and the free movement of capital, but no free movement of labor, then in those countries where, where there's a surplus amount of, uh, of people and lower wages, um, they would now be able to produce stuff in those countries. They don't, wouldn't need to move because they can now sell things and move goods uh, to other countries. And people would come and invest in them because now capital would be freer. So um, I, I don't think we need to be uh, so fixated on the free movement of people. It's a very yeah, symbolic but, um, thing, very symbolic thing. Uh, and so we should certainly persevere. And one of the things we pointed out in our report is that we actually have a shortage of people. You know, we're so, so slightly xenophobic. The smaller a place is, the more xenophobic it is, uh, oddly. Uh, and we're afraid of foreigners coming. Uh, but the reality is that our regions are underpopulated, especially, you know, places like Guyana, Suriname, and Belize. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we lowered the threshold in our report as to what you would need to move. You wouldn't need to show elaborate set of skills. All you need to have is more than uh, two. And this is for the skills national regime, as we know in our Caricom skills national. You're, you're proposing changes to that. Oh, how we go about yeah. that? Yeah, 
No, so you'd only need to show two CXC passes, and you don't need to show that in any special certificate. You could show that on your phone, electronically, uh, a certificate that shows you've got these two things, and that will be accepted for you to stay uh, for longer than a holiday period in, in our region. So that would encourage the mobility of people. Okay, but um, I mean, I, I accept that, and I, I agree that that's a, a good step to take. But as you would recall, given the pushback, um, when we recently attempted to broaden the categories of steel workers by some member states, and I think there was a court case from the CCJ on that, that, that said they basically don't have to implement. Uh, how do you think that this more radical proposal would be received? Well, we, I, I presented the report to CARICOM heads on two occasions, um, and I would say it has been well received. Um, I don't think the sad reality of our educational system is that too few of our students graduate with more than two CXCs. Wow, that, 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 that is the truth. But I mean, and of course, there are different dimensions to it. Obviously, the leaders would buy in. And we already spoke about sort of the xenophobia um, as it relates to um, persons sort of welcoming others to, to their shores. I imagine that they got the heads of government themselves might have more buy-in than, than the individual on the street. And that is something that we found a difficulty in terms of overcoming uh, as, as CARICOM, in terms of how do we get uh, the buy-in for a lot of these proposals from the average man uh, in Barbados right. now so, we hear, I was so going to say in Barbados now we hear um, PMR yeah. speak about um, expanding the population and that, that's often met with a lot of pushback. Okay, so Delana, let me deal with your cynicism. Firstly, uh, we're saying we don't need 15 countries to agree, we only need five countries to agree. Uh, and they can start doing that. Secondly, it, we don't need to make that the be-all and end-all of movement in CARICOM. Um, if people want to be xenophobic and we can't get even five countries to agree to that, uh, then actually we just need to be better at moving goods and moving capital around. So our recommendations on making it easy to have a single point of reference for financial conduct, uh, again, something which has support in CARICOM, um is is also going to be important so i think we can yes we're not going to get all 15 countries to agree to free movement of labor so let's let's focus on what is practically possible five countries and if we don't get free movement of labor but we got free movement of capital and free movement of goods we'd actually get the same benefits I'm, 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 it's not that I'm a skeptic. I know a lot of our listeners are, yeah. So uh, I'm just well, kind of you know, bringing forward. Skepticism has become ingrained. Um, it has become sort of entrenched because people consider that there's there's been not a lot of movement, and I think that even that is is unfair. You know, I, I was asked uh, one of the most um, sort of enlightening experiences in my life to support Dominica after the horrors of, of Hurricane Maria wiped out 226% of GDP. And when a country wakes up in the morning uh, to, a, to a blood red dawn uh, with um, no uh, everything devastated. Uh, it, it's unclear what a country is. And law and order was restored in Dominica. How? By the arrival of the RSS. What is the RSS? Mm -hmm. Very few people have heard of it. It's the Regional Security Service. Mm -hmm. it, is Bar it was a Barbadian Defense Force and the Jamaican Defense Force that rescued the law and order situation in Dominica. And the Regional Security Service is one example 
uh, of a number of agencies that go ahead and do things um, quietly behind the scenes that people mm -hmm. don't hear. So I, I know that cynicism and skepticism is entrenched and it is deep. And this report has been acclaimed uh, for its practicality of looking at each problem and looking for what is the easiest way to get ourselves unstuck. It's also about, sorry to interrupt you, it's also about no pointing out that we have, we have been successful at certain things. Uh, we're, we're talking about moving the Caribbean faster, uh, and we have the fastest person on Earth uh, in the Caribbean, 9.58. <laughs> uh, well, you know, for me, I, I think I would have to agree um, in, in terms of the practicality of the report. I mean, in going to the report, there, there were very, you know, simple points. Uh, this is the benefit of it. How does it move the needle? I think that's the term that you guys use in the report. How does it move the needle? What are the things that we need to do? Maybe one, two, three, uh, four different steps that we can easily implement, low cost uh, for the most part, that we can implement to move forward. And, 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 you know, if the governments are able uh, to move forward, at least five. And I think that that whole notion of enhanced um, cooperation is a game changer in, in my mind, because for so long we've heard about, um, obviously, there's, there's disparities between uh, the size and scope of the different economies and so. And, and I think this definitely has the potential, like you said, to allow, uh, allow those countries who are skeptics to kind of stand on the sidelines for a little bit and watch it play out, uh, watch the... the, the advancements and the time that it's going to take to start to you know work through the teething problems and so and then thereafter they're free to then join and then you can expand i mean i also get the the, the, the notion as well because i know some persons have said that it's it's kind of um fragmentation in some ways and is it really a caricom project if only five of, of the of the 15 are involved and so on but i i think uh if we move forward with, with enhanced cooperation and then become successful, I think it becomes easier uh, for persons to kind of see that, yes, it is CARICOM and it is progress in terms of the CSME because we are moving forward. And those persons or those countries that are moving forward are benefiting and it's not to the detriment of any other country. So I think those things are important. Um, I had another question um, specifically from a quote from our Prime Minister, Jadrick, um, Prime Minister Gonzalez, and he he had made the case in 2008 for revamping the CARICOM governance structure to accommodate in a measured way uh, supranational initiatives in targeted areas of integration, trade, um, and of course, economic integration. So, Professor, did you think that there is a, a room or is, is a supranational power desirable? Or is it even attainable given the, the politics of CARICOM states? I'm not necessarily... Uh sold on more power at the center. Uh, I think that um, some things need to be coordinated at the center, and a good example of that is regional security service. But I think that we can make a lot of progress at a lower level via mutual um, recognition of each other's rules uh, and the creation of some convergence uh, of our rules. It isn't if we are trying to stop money laundering entering our region, there's no need for 15 different sets of rules because the effective task is the same. If we're trying to determine whether somebody is a fit and proper person to sell financial businesses to our citizens, we don't need 15 sets of rules. Um, we don't need one super uh, super national organization that sets one rule, but we could have a network of mutual recognition that if, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that if Barbados approves something, Jamaica will recognize that. We've actually started uh, some discussions in Jamaica 
and between Jamaica and Barbados of a mutuality of recognition for some non-bank financial services. Uh, and I think that we could easily move that to a network of five countries uh, and the, e the easier movement of services and goods uh, of those five would encourage others to join in. Uh, while we on that, Prof, what do you think, I was reading an article recently, I think from the CEO of, of Massey, and he was again bringing forward the idea of a single CARICOM stock exchange. Uh, and he's saying obviously that that would have benefits for, for the private sector and so on. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not uh, that persuaded. I think it sounds attractive, but, you know, bringing together, um, uh, there's basically one and a half liquid stock exchanges in the Caribbean, uh, one being in Jamaica, half being in, uh, in Trinidad. Um, bringing together a bunch of illiquid stock exchanges doesn't make them necessarily liquid. You have to decide um, uh, what is it that you're going to... You, you, it has to be uh, a place where lots of investors are or where lots of companies are. Um, and um, I think we could begin by having a, a cheap cross-listings. What a cross-listing is that if you're listed in Jamaica, you're automatically listed in the others. Um, and um, that would be a, a step. And if that was um, was uh, leading to some positive responses, we might go further. Uh, and we, there are actually currently no restrictions for people in Jamaica, for instance, buying a stock in uh, Trinidad or a Trinidadian buying a stock in Barbados. And so what do we really mean by a single exchange? So a cross-listing uh, of all stocks and um, making sure there are no restrictions of investors buying things on each other's stock markets would be two ways of essentially creating a single stock exchange without having the paraphernalia of an institution. Uh, got you. Uh, that's interesting as well, because I mean, even even in his uh, interview, I think he was doing a presentation for the Barbados Central Bank and and he was saying that they had delisted from the Barbados Stock Exchange, I think maybe a year or two ago, uh, because of the, the, the cost, the relative cost versus the benefits of being uh, cross listed on, on the Barbados Stock Exchange. And he was also pointing. And I guess that's why you probably would have mentioned that Trinidad is sort of half liquid. Um, uh, the difficulties that persons were having in terms of sort of uh, moving their the, the capital, uh, their gains uh, from the, from from the Trinidad and, and, and Tobago stock exchange. So all of those things uh, I found interesting. I just wanted to pick your brain on that. Now, the report. Let's kind of go in firmly back to the report uh, at, the, at the very start of the report, and, and and so far we haven't discussed anything related to COVID nineteen necessarily. But you included in the report um, in in October a twelve point action plan to respond to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Can you highlight some of these action items that you believe are still relevant and are critical to the COVID-19 fight as things stand today? Because obviously some time has passed. Yes, I think that one of the things we, we observed was um, the advent of the digital economy. Um, something we've been talking about, speculating on, uh, cajoling towards, and suddenly it began to happen um, automatically. Um, and uh, people were working from home. People were suddenly, we, we created in the Caribbean a delivery economy. Suddenly, you did not have to queue up uh, to get stuff. People, you could order online, pay online, and get it delivered. Um, and so we were looking at that and thinking, well, what about if you could do that across the region? If you could work 
uh, that way. And all goods could be, you know, delivered that way. So what would that need? Firstly, let's say you are a, a seller of professional services. Um, you would need mutual recognition of qualifications for professional services. Uh, and that's one of our 12-point uh, plans. You would also need the idea that a, a regional company, let's say it's a, it's a Barbadian company employing someone in St. Vincent, um, and they're an online worker. Um, we would need to, to make sure that that, um, uh, uh, you know, which, which social security scheme is the Barbadian firm paying into? Because we mm -hmm. don't want the rise of the digital economy to lead to um, a pauperization of workers and a loss of their rights and service conditions. Um, and so we talk uh, in our 12-point plan to make sure, and there are actually some things in place, uh, but to make sure that um, there is a uh, easy way for social security contributions. A Barbadian firm will be paying into the St. Vincent social security system uh, in that case. Um, and to make that easy and obvious, and clear, um, even though it's a, a firm that's not operating in St. Vincent, it's a firm that's operating in Barbados, it just happens to have online workers in St. Vincent. Um, today, uh, that is not crystal clear for many firms. And also the same with where taxes are paid and levied. So we, I was about to ask that, not to cross you, I was about to ask, is there any concern uh, with respect to the rise of the digital economy? And we did an episode earlier uh, with uh, the founder of what, uh, Chequi, which is uh, basically a, uh, basically a, like a Craigslist um, that has been started by some Dominican youth. Um, but essentially one of the conversations that we had was, uh, about is, is there any fair with respect to uh, tax avoidance for example you're operating digitally in dominica in barbados for a company that's not based in your country uh is the government fair for that you know persons might not pay taxes well it, it is a it is a risk but you know the digital economy has more records than the cashless economy <laughs> so that, um, that's true you can catch them <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it would require our tax authorities to be a little bit um, have, have greater access and use of technology, but I don't I don't fear that. I mean, in the long run, people are generally more mobile. Um, and you know one of the things we've been doing in Barbados where I'm also an economic advisor has been trying to switch the tax system towards things that are uh, less mobile. So um, switching out of income taxes towards property taxes, um, switching out of, um, of, of corporate income taxes towards more transactional taxes and property taxes and transactional taxes like expenditure and sales and VAT, those are much harder to avoid. Definitely. Uh, you, I don't, you, you're going to make another point. I don't know if you wanted to continue with that or you want us to move on. Sure, move on to another question. And, and I, I'm okay. aware that we're in, we're in this bar, we're having a nice conversation, but the lawyer is being very quiet. <laughs> it's been quite an education for me listening to the questions the learners are posing. So I'm, I'm just really sitting back and absorbing a lot of it. Okay. Uh, you know, what, what happens, what happens, Prof, is that uh, invariably when we have, I think the last episodes, we did um, legal topics and it was quite the opposite where we were discussing the, 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 the self-government bill in Trinidad and, and Tobago, where obviously Tobago is seeking greater autonomy. And I was the one who was just quiet <laughs> uh, because I was the... You weren't able to get a word in edgeways. Is, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know that goes when you're in a room with, with, with many legal minds sometimes. <laughs> mm. uh, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask, and I saw that Barbados recently, um, you, you, in, in an interview you did with the Barbados today, I think you essentially said that, you know, Barbados is on board um, with the, the new, the OECD plan for the global minimum corporate tax. So I want to ask it in, uh, this in almost a, a two-part question. So one, of course, we know, I think it's up to 133, 134 countries now have signed on. Um, how do you see it impacting CARICOM countries individually and then collectively in terms of the regional integration process um, through the CSME? Well, it primarily, um, I, I, and I think the first thing to say is that th this is one of those things where there's just no route to being outside. I think there were, when, when, when we were reluctant uh, to sign up, but not because we were um, reluctant to sign up, but we, we were being offered something that was very vague and undecided and unclear. Um, there was no particular rate. It was a minimum of, <laughs> and um, uh, a, a minimum of at least a certain amount, uh, 15%. And a lot of the criteria and conditions were unresolved. So they're asking states to sign up. Um, and, and their definition of sign up was kind of interesting because we know the U.S., cannot sign an international treaty without Congress agreeing. Mm -hmm. And it's proven, by yeah. no means clear that Congress would agree. And yet they were saying, well, the US has signed up. Uh, and uh, there was some level of bullying um, uh, for those who weren't signed up. So there isn't really a a path outside of something like this. You have to so they, they're not saying the that you're going to be blacklisted, but it, it's kind of understood that there's, some, there's going to be some repercussions if you don't get involved. Uh, yeah. with it yeah and in mm -hmm. fact i think that's in the exact words they used to us when we asked <laughs> what would happen if we were. <laughs> <laughs> um so um i think that you know the best thing and I, I i tried to to drag the caribbean unsuccessfully to saying that if you're going to sign up anyway why not be first why be last because if you're going to be last you're going to be look people gonna view you and you join the club last a little bit skeptical mm -hmm. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. and you, then you don't really have as much say, you know, exactly. they're going to say, well, you just come. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're the first, you have some moral authority to start to start influencing what it looks like. But anyway, it's very hard to get us to be first at things. Um, so uh, it requires a certain boldness and confidence that we, we don't have, but hopefully that will return. Um, I think the other thing to say is that it won't really impact many countries that don't have an international financial, an international business sector. Mm -hmm. So think of our biggest economies, uh, Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana. Um, they're probably going to be unaffected because it's really about international businesses that are that have a, a, a entity uh, and that have revenues that are over $750 million US dollars. Um, and so there are not many companies like that um, in the domestically driven economies. But quite a few of our countries have an international business sector um, and the international financial sector, and they will be impacted. Um, it, it will impact uh, corporate tax revenues in Barbados and elsewhere. So we have to, um, you know, be be innovative at how we address this. Um, and one of the ideas, you know, when I was speaking to um, uh, the OECD on this, I was saying that the reason why this is anti-development, um, this idea, is that because developed countries attract businesses in all kinds of other ways. 
not just the mm -hmm. tax rates. So Alabama offered um, offered Mercedes uh, something like 140 million dollars to move manufacturing to Alabama, and that's why Mercedes Benz are now made in Alabama. Um, Sunderland has offered Nissan uh, around 150 million pounds to stay in Sunderland. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if everyone had the, the world had the 15%, the same tax rate, it would put smaller countries at a disadvantage um, because they can't offer these other things. No major manufacturing plant anywhere in the world has been established without major grants that small countries can't do. So one of the things we've been thinking about, and we talked to the OECD about this, is saying, well, our average tax rate for international business, for, for all business, is below 15. Moving to 15 from where we are in Barbados, that's not the same for other countries, actually would mean um, higher revenues. Now, of course, we wouldn't actually get those revenues because companies would leave. Mm -hmm. But it would mean that we could potentially have higher revenues and we could then use those revenues for grants, to provide grants uh, to support um, investment, research and development uh, and other things. So we're looking at ways in which we might say our corporate tax rate rises from 5% to 15%. But people who invest in R&D in Barbados will then have access to substantial grants. And we will therefore end up with probably similar tax revenues, net mm -hmm. as we had before, but more R&D spending and more and the companies staying because of these grants. So that's where we're looking at. People need to, we, countries need to think carefully about these things. We have for a long time uh, sort of uh, played a sort of, um, rearguard action of trying to play around the rules and i think we just have to embrace these things um and sort of jump ahead as opposed to be dragged along uh and trying to, that no one notices that we're a bit behind the curve we need to be in front of the curve and this would be a way of doing it with the region we need we need r d we talked earlier about how um you know investing in education alone was not enough one of the things we've learned is that um Ownership also matters. That just having a well-educated workforce is not enough if they own nothing. Um, and one of the future uh, concepts of ownership is ownership of knowledge. So having companies invest in R&D and intellectual property in our region in return for which they get grants, I think may be an important way of making sure that our people end up with ownership of the key thing that will matter in the future, which is ownership of knowledge. Yeah, that's, that's very insightful, Prof. Um, well, I've just, I, looked up, I just looked up at the time. Uh, I don't know if Jarek has any other questions, or if you have any final thoughts. Um, if not, uh, then we're probably going to jump into uh, this little second part, the segment of the podcast that we call, uh, what are you raising your glasses to? Um, we used to be in a bar, and so we just typically at the end of the podcast is just raise a toast to something. Uh, so Jarek, I don't know if you have any questions that, that you want to end up with before we go into the second segment of the pod. Uh, yeah, no, nothing else for me. The, the only thing that came to my mind earlier, but we've long moved off from it, but it was the practicality of the report. I What I was wondering earlier is if the commissioner, if you envisage any kind of difficulty in getting, say, the appropriate five members to come on board for a particular proposal, um, like you mentioned with the fast ferry proposal, you were saying that you know it'd be more feasible for, say, like the Windward Islands and Trinidad to come on board for something like that. But in the sense of 
five signing on and then the others were standing on the side then jumping on board like do you envision any difficulty in getting like the appropriate five if 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 i'm making it clear um to sign on for a particular sure. proposal to motivate the others well we we came up with five uh in part because we saw a number of these areas they were around five countries I mean, if you think of the oecs for example um, they have uh, regional ferries that work quite well. Now, we can't simply expand that model because um, the distances between those islands are relatively uh, uh, lower and some of the water is not as, um, as treacherous. Um, but that's an example of where you could find five countries agreeing to things. And the OBC, OECS has, has actually is a more integrated um, subset of CARICOM countries than, than the rest of us. So okay. we felt five was a practical number. It can't be too low uh, because then it'll become a bit meaningless. Uh, and it can't be too high for the reasons that you, you're hinting at, which is it'd be practically hard to get agreement. But we think five is a reasonable number. And of course, we're not fundamentalist about anything. If we find that that number is too low or too high, it, they could move it up or down. No, that Jerry is asking that question, um, Prof. I kind of remember one thing I wanted to ask. I think I, I saw in the report that you said, well, not you, but the report said um, that you guys have um, investors lined up, or investors essentially who would be willing or interested in uh, investing in this fast ferry service. Now, I think you said up to the tune of like 50 million US dollars. I, I mean, in, in my mind, I'm kind of on that's a lot of money. And, and, and so I'm wondering if it, and we've heard in the past and we see it in, in, in individual countries that persons, particularly run up the elections, for example, they would say, oh, we have X, Y investors that are ready and willing to come in. But then after the election, those promises start to fall away. Uh, my question is, uh, is it realistic that we're going to get that sort of investment? Uh, or is it going to end up being a situation where governments do have to end up pulling their pockets, as you would say? So I think that uh, the challenge for a fast ferry system, so, you know, a lot of people, uh, the degree of cynicism is so strong in the Caribbean that they they sort of um, don't don't even bother to think uh, so deeply on the subject. They don't drill down very far. So why do we not have a fast ferry system? The, the reality is we consider ourselves to be one region but our waters are not easy between the islands. They're what they call blue waters. And so you need um, to have a safe and fast ferry service. You need these large catamarans. These large cats actually cost around $75 million. Now, yeah. let's say, you, let's say you, you invest in a large cat for $75 million um, in, in a service that's never before done. You're going to have to persuade your bankers that you're going to have the revenues for something never before done that will fund their debt. Um, and one of the concerns the bankers will have is that your profitability will be based on something you can't control, uh, which is uh, energy costs. So the main cost of running these ferries uh, is not the staff, um, is not various charges and license fees. It is the marine diesel oil, uh, then some new boats which are gas-fired. Um, there may be some new boats in the future which are electric, but it is a cost of energy. Um, and so I think that there may be some role to play for the governments to sort of guarantee certain things um, without having to fork out a lot of capital because the governments don't have don't have the capital. Uh, so we've been approached by some Middle Eastern investors who may be prepared to uh, put up a certain amount of money if, if the governments may be shared 
some of the risks in terms of uh, what happens if energy costs got too high uh, or, or uh, what happens if there were no passengers. Um, so um, I think that there may be a role, but, but we have to make sure it's not a heavy role because the governments don't have the capacity for that, especially in a post-COVID environment. Oh, definitely. And, and I guess, again, me being the, the skeptic, that's what persons are saying. We've heard this before. And that's why I wanted yeah. to do this podcast with, uh, with you, Prof, because I know uh, you're a very practical guy. Uh, you're a very learned guy. And, and when you uh, put forward points, you sort of elucidate in a way uh, that I have been impressed with and, and that many others have been. And I'm hoping that that sort of um, goes on to our listeners and, and, and to get them to understand that sometimes it's not that complex. Sometimes there are simple things that we can do uh, to move things along if we just, you know, spend a little bit more time thinking a little bit more deeply. Um, but, but, and, now, and that, but now, go ahead. Delano, now I have to hand over the, uh, the baton to people like yourselves because my commission uh, of voluntary unpaid commission of busy people <laughs> have spent uh what two years uh beavering away developing some practical solutions but uh the caricom heads would like us to stay on and kind of get some of these things done but that's not really uh what my commissioners can can really uh do um mm-hmm. one of them one of them has just become the head of the world trade <laughs> <They're actually>, exactly <laughs> they, yeah. they, they don't have a lot of spare time um, and so we really need the public to uh, understand the report, to appreciate it, um, to, to debate it, um, and where they like things to, to apply pressure on governments to continue and, and to proceed. Because we, we, we were not, you know, we, we're kind of signing off. Um, we feel it's our duty uh, to communicate the report, not just to... Um, I remember, you know, when we began looking at this, the second commission report and looking at the first we, we thought of two things firstly we had to be practical and secondly we thought what is a report in the 21st century uh, is it a written document or is it a podcast or you know or is it a, uh, is it um is social media uh, um, you know blogs uh, is it a blog uh, so we, we've been very open-minded to the different ways of communicating uh, reports that said if you ever do get a chance to read the West Indian Commission report that was uh, drafted in part by Sir Srirath Ramphal uh, mm-hmm. and and those greats of the of the of the earlier CARICOM integration movement one of the things that that we will miss is the beauty of their writing mm-hmm. yeah. I, I have read um, it in part um, not not fully but I, I of course as a student in the Arthur Lewis uh, institute here at, at Kville where I did my mm. PhD we, 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 we were immersed in that because of course you know uh, like you said as is, is a big part of our development modeling as, as we've as we've come through so you are definitely right in terms of the pioneers um, of, of this integration movement um we over time um riveting discussion I, I get carried away sometimes when I have uh, when I have somebody as insightful as you prof uh, but we're gonna end it there and, and we're gonna move into uh, what, the second segment, which is, of course, what you're raising your glass to, Prof. I know you're in quarantine, but what could you raise a toast to now? Well, it, it's Britain, so there's nothing stopping quarantine uh, having a pint of bitter uh, to <laughs> raise my glass to. Um, uh, and I think that w- without you know, in danger of being corny, but I, I think I want to raise a glass to 
uh, the people of the Caribbean who've gone through this pandemic. You know, we, we have been, we wake up every morning to new instructions from our governments uh, to, to do this and do that <laughs> and, and don't do this and don't do that. And by and large, the large majority of the population have have taken it and have tried very hard to to um, protect themselves and in their behaviors protect other people there are clearly exceptions but but i think that the vast majority of people have taken it very seriously um have been listening and have been doing uh, and going through great sacrifice um in order to try and beat this thing and i think we will get through it but i want to raise a glass to the ordinary people who have have had a very uncomfortable lives in the past uh, 18 months um uh, and, and have been demoralized by how long this is going on and how there's seems to be mm -hmm. every corner we reach there seems to be another corner uh, mm -hmm. and so i raise uh, a glass to their indefatigability uh, and their resolute nature and their morale Definitely, we could all raise yeah. our glass and, and, and drink to that. Jadik, are you drinking to this? Evening, Definitely could drink to that. Uh, yeah, just um, in keeping, well, I was going to go along the same line as Professor there, but um, in keeping in the with the resilience, that tone of our people during this time, I want to drink to uh, a bit of a CSME um, coming inside here, but the Vincentians who have gone abroad to train with sandals in the hotel industry. Um, during this time, and it's been difficult for that particular sector. And to see Sandals welcoming Vincentians and training them abroad and, uh, you know, helping them get the skills that they will need to operate in new hotels coming up on stream in St. Vincent and across the region is something that we must raise our glass, glasses to. I think it's something that would definitely, um, that, that, like Professor was saying, was a bit demoralizing during our time. I think this is something that would really lift everyone lift our spirits and help our people realize that they can still uh, do something across the region. And it's good to see that Sandals reaching out and helping us do that. So I just wanted to raise my glass to that and all those incentions that took up that mandate and went abroad. I raised uh, We could definitely, <laughs> definitely drink to that. Now for me, guys, I, I want to raise my glass to the hope of the, the CARICOM Fast Ferry service becoming a reality. Um, even okay. if it starts with just five, because I mean, I spent the last two months or so in, in St. Lucia and I, I was at pains. I have, my, you know, for example, my vehicles parked up in Barbados and I'm in St. Lucia, uh, you know, paying to, to, to get another vehicle available to me and all of that. And when you think about it, you know, I was every day I lamented, why, why couldn't I just drive my boat, my, my vehicle on a ferry, you know, pull up in, in, in St. Lucia, spend my time there, my little month or two in St. Lucia. And then when I'm ready to come back for the new semester, just drive back, just drive it back across. And I know it's something that, that that's being done in Europe and other parts of the world. So I know it's possible. I just think we need to really, you know, dig deep for our leaders and find the political will. And our people need to, like Professor said, we need to start to put some pressure on our leaders to do right by the region, not just their local electorate, but to do right by the people of the individual countries. So I want to raise my glass to the possibility of deeper integration. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Definitely raise our glasses to that. Cheers. And all our commissioners are joining you in that. Right. So uh, thanks, Professor, again. That brings this episode to an end. We want to thank you for coming on, sharing your knowledge, sharing your insight. It's been a really good discussion. Um, like I said, it's been more of an education for me listening to the questions posed to you uh, by Delana. It's been uh, really insightful. I think it would be for our listeners as well. Um, again, we want to ask everyone to continue to listen to us, subscribe, and we're going to keep bringing on great guests uh, like Professor Passad and 
we hope that you stick around. As always, I'm the lawyer, Chadwick Cummings. And I'm Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. Catch you next time.